Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, March 11th, we're studying Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. More of Jesus' opponents come in an attempt to trap him, this time with a question about taxes. Jesus yet again avoids the trap, and he teaches the truth of God's word. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. Pastor Heidi serves as the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Glad to be on as always. So we get started this morning. Pastor Heidi, let's talk context. We're here in Mark chapter 12. What do we need to know about what's going on around it that helps us with this text? Well, this is getting towards the end of the gospel, which means that the confrontations between Jesus and his opponents are coming to their their sharpest. You know, this is when he's really driving home the point that uh, these his his opponents have rejected what they should have known. So we, I mean, we're coming out of the parable of the tenants, for example, of them being thrown out of the of the the vineyard and you know being given to another, and also these this these confrontations that will eventually end up ending and that with the his opponents wanting to kill him. So this is kind of the the head of the conflict in the Gospels just before we begin the actual passion of our Lord. So keeping that kind of climax idea of this conflict in mind, I think will be helpful as we go forward today. We're in a, a section of Holy Week. That's the, the setting. We're in Holy Week here in Mark chapter 12, where it seems like one opponent after another, it's kind of like they just line up all ready to take a swing at Jesus in some kind of an attempt to trap him. And it's all a swing and a miss. Jesus, he dodges, he ducks, he dives, he and he, he ends up, what's, what's beautiful about it is that not only does each time Jesus avoid the trap, but he ends up speaking positively in terms of what the word of God actually teaches. You know, he's not just sort of being, oh, look, look at Jesus. He was able to outmaneuver them. Certainly he does that, but he ends up actually giving us truth. He gives us the word of God to hold on to, to learn in the midst of all this attack that's happening to him. And in such a way that his opponents can't negate it. They can't speak against it. He basically silences them on every case, and they're, they're no longer able to speak against him. I think that's part of what makes them so angry and what drives them to finally you know, want to kill him, because not only has he set forth the truth positively, he's done it in such a way that they can't, they can't refute it. Right. Yeah, it's, I mean, that's, that's why it seems that one group after another is like, okay, you guys take your turn at Jesus. Well, you missed. Now the next group and and each one, yeah, Jesus responds in such a way that they, they can't speak back. There's just nothing to say. That, and, and even the previous one, you know, you mentioned the parable of the tenants that kind of comes in between. In the previous one, each time you, you kind of get the feeling that his opponents know what Jesus is talking about, that they know what he's saying. They know what he is laying out for them, but they just stubbornly refuse to believe it. And, and all they're left with in that case, as you said, is just this, this silence. They, they don't have anything other than their unbelief and their rage and, and hatred and anger that ends up boiling over, as you said, on Monday, Thursday, when he's betrayed into their hands and they actually do everything to lead to his crucifixion. Yeah, absolutely. And maybe something worth pointing out here, too, is that uh, this is kind of their, if you want to call it their their last opportunity. Mm. Uh, their hearts have become incredibly hardened as a result of their rejection. And I think that is what is leading ultimately to uh, Monday, Thursday. You know, this is kind of a, they can't go back after this point. For them to reject him now shows that it's it's the last step. Now, now there is nothing else for them but to move forward with their evil designs. Yeah, I think I think that's a that's well said. And even I mean just thinking about where this is going on Monday Thursday that being the Passover. 
I've said this before that I think there's a lot of similarities between the hardness of heart that you see among these various groups. Today, we're going to talk about the Pharisees and the Herodians. We've also seen scribes, chief priests, elders. We're going to see Sadducees later. That when you look at their hardness of heart, there's a lot of similarity to what happens to Pharaoh in the mm-hmm. book of Exodus. And, you know, I mean, again, this leading toward the Passover, that like that's kind of the all of those previous nine plagues, those ninth in particular with the darkness back in the book of Exodus. It's like that this is it, Pharaoh. It's it's now or never. And just like Pharaoh refused to believe, so do Jesus opponents here. Yeah. And just like God uh, gained the glory over Pharaoh in his stubbornness and yet still carrying out his design, uh, God will gain his glory even over uh, the opponents here and despite their faithlessness. So the, the purposes of God will not be stopped just because his opponents won't believe in him. So let's see how that works out in today's text. We are in Mark chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. That's the text for today. Mark 12, verses 13 through 17. Pastor Heidi, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. I, I would guess that the, the they is the, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests from chapter 11. And then the first part of chapter 12, Jesus has just told this parable against them. They kind of recognize, okay, we didn't, we swung and missed with that one. Let's try again. They send specifically this time Pharisees and Herodians. Now we've, we've met these groups in the past in Mark, but Remind us, who are these groups? What do they believe? What are their distinctives? And maybe more importantly, what are they doing together here? (laughs) Why have they banded together? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, The Pharisees, in a nutshell, would be those members of of the Jews who believe in a, a, uh, a unwritten tradition which has been handed down from Moses in addition to the word of God. And it is this tradition which they hold on to. Now, what's important for us today is that the Pharisees are very jealous for uh, this idea of being a, you know, the Jewish nation, the kingdom of God. And they're they're not nearly as willing to work with the Roman government. You know, they're, they're probably to some degree willing to play along, you know, just a little bit. But they really are interested in setting up the kingdom again. You know, they want their own kingdom. They don't want to be under somebody else's thumb. Now, they're not as extreme as some of the other groups in that time, which were trying to actively throw off Roman uh, Roman oppression, but they are certainly opposed to the idea that Israel would be ruled by Rome. Do you want me to add to that or do you want to add to that? Well, I mean, so, and I know it's not quite the same situation, but Mm -hmm. the Pharisees would have been those that would have been not happy with Jesus for eating with tax collectors earlier in the gospel, which again, not the same tax that we're talking about here necessarily, but that working with Rome, that's not going to be a part of the Pharisees MO. Generally, they're going to be opposed to that. And so, I mean, I guess the, the important point here is that when they ask this question about taxes, the Pharisees aren't really a neutral party in that, it sounds like. Correct. Yeah. They're they're because they're gonna fall on the side of saying, well, maybe we shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar because that, you know, acknowledges Caesar's dominion over us. And, you know, we we are not subject to we don't want to consider ourselves as subject to Rome. Now, don't and don't forget, they will later say, you know, we have no king but Caesar. So they're kind of in this weird middle-ish kind of ground, like they're willing to play along to some degree, but at the same time, uh, they don't really like it all that much. You know, they, they want to throw it off, but they're not really sure how that's going to happen. So they're, they're not happy with the idea of being under the subjection of Rome. 
With with that and the Pharisees in particular, would that unhappiness with being under the subjection of Rome, is that more theological for them? Is it political? Is it a combination of both? What, what do you think? Uh, it, it has to be a combination of both because there's not really this idea of uh, separation, church and state like we have, where we have a rigid division between religion and politics. Uh, for them, they would see God's promises, which they made to them in the scriptures, as being fulfilled in a literal kingdom. You know, that a literal physical, political kingdom was what God was trying to give them. And that's what they're looking for. Okay. So it's kind of a both and, you know, it it all kind of blends together in their thought. So, I mean, could we say it like this, that as long as Rome is in power, the Pharisees aren't going to be looking for the fulfillment of the promises of God, at least in totality? Correct. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, that, that would be fair. Okay, so so that's the that's the Pharisees. Then they don't like Rome in general, not as not as zealous as the Zealots, if I can say it that way. Not as extreme as the Zealots. They're they're not going to necessarily be advocating outright for for military action. Again, not not as forcefully as the Zealots would, but they're they're going to fall on a certain side of this tax question on their own already. Now, what about the Herodians? How do they fall into the picture? The Herodians are kind of a a harder group to pin down, but they are ultimately the people who are supportive of Herod Antipas, uh, who was the, who was ruling over, what is it, Galilee at the time. And he was, for one thing, he was not very well liked by the people of Israel. Uh, He was not very popular among the, the crowds at all. So for the Herodians to come in and to be his supporters show that, you know, they are very much in favor of this kind of uh, outside influence. You know, they're very much in favor of the way things have been set up. So they're very much on the pro side of the question. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yes, because, you know, we support Herod Antipas and we support the our, our Roman overlords kind of a thing. So they're 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 falling on the other side of the question. All right, so you've got two groups that really don't agree theologically, politically. I suppose, before before we go there, for the Herodians, is there any theology involved in this, or is this pretty much a political move for them? I, it's got to be almost political, because we know so little about them. They really only show up in the Gospels, and uh, the fact that they're supporting an unpopular leader probably says that it's much more political for them than than theological but again, it all kind of blends together in those days. But I think it is more, you know, they, they want to be in favor of the government as it is. Okay, so so you've got one group that's, both things are going on for the Pharisees, theology, politics, they intermingle, mm-hmm. maybe mostly political for the Herodians. But when it comes to the question that they're going to pose, they probably would have fallen on different sides of it. The Pharisees would have said, no, we're not going to pay taxes to Caesar, or we don't want to. We don't think it's right or lawful for us to. Mm -hmm. The Herodians say, yes, we should be paying taxes to Caesar. Here they are coming to Jesus. What are these two? I mean, it seems like they wouldn't wouldn't want to, to come to Jesus together. What are they doing together here in Mark 12? Yeah, that's a great question, isn't it? I mean, when you have these groups who are otherwise opposed to each other banding together against Christ, I mean, we see this kind of thing happening all the time in the scriptures and frankly throughout church history for that matter. But like with the the friendship of Pilate and Herod, um, you know, he they were at enmity with each other until the day of, you know, well, until Good Friday, you know, when Jesus is condemned. And so it's, it's this idea that, even though they are opposed to one another, you know, philosophically, religiously, you know, politically, however you want to put it, they see in Jesus a threat to both of them. And so the, the way of the world often is, is that they will put aside their differences for the time being as a way of trying to attack Christ and his body. And I say his body, meaning the church, of course. You know, it's, it's just, it is this idea that, we're willing to ban, you know, the, the the kings of the earth, you know, gather themselves together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, you know, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. They don't want to be subject to God, and they're willing to work together for the time being as a way of accomplishing that end. So, their shared enmity toward the Lord 
proves to be a stronger bond than whatever differences they have politically or, or otherwise would drive them apart. That that's actually the the glue that holds them together is their their enmity toward Jesus, almost sort of a an anti church. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you could certainly say that. I mean, in, in the idea that, you know, if they have become one in their opposition, that yes, they are opposed to Jesus and his body. I mean, because how often do you see this happening, like you say, throughout the scriptures otherwise, you know, where groups who would normally be opposed to each other will still be banded together against, you know, like Paul, for example, or against the early church. And it, it really is this idea that we need to resist this because they see in it a threat to their own existence, which is absolutely true for, for that matter. You know, Jesus has come to d- declare the truth and their falsehoods, which they are trying to hold up, are certainly at risk. Well, and I mean, it, it's just, it's striking to me the way that, say, you know, in the in the church, how, how within the church, the bond that we have is is that we are together in Christ. And mm-hmm. I, I mean I think of the the vision of John in Revelation 7 where he sees all of the the church in heaven and there's people from every nation and language and tribe all of these things that would otherwise divide them those things are not important because they are all united together in Christ. That's a, a picture of the church. And and here you have a, a different sort of group where all these other differences that would normally divide them, they're they're united, but it's not because they are in Christ, but because they are outside of Christ, because they're enemies of Christ. It's just a, it's quite the juxtaposition, I think. Well, and also that being in Christ means that we have the mind of Christ, which means that, you know, we think like him, we are, you know, of one mind with him, whereas being outside of Christ, despite their unity or seeming unity, you know, this unity of enmity, uh, they actually are not of one mind. You know, they are divided in everything except their opposition to the Lord. And, and that opposition to the Lord, though, that's enough for them to join together at this moment in an attempt to attack him. So some of the Pharisees, some of the Herodians, these two groups that otherwise would not get along, that would answer this question oppositely, they come to Jesus to trap him in his talk. And so they they lay the trap and there's several things I think we can talk about here, Pastor Heidi. One is just the way that they, well, they really lay it on thick when it comes to flattery. It sounds like what was that verse, <laughs> verse fourteen? Help us, help us into the the way that the the Pharisees, the Rodians, laid the trap for Jesus. Yeah, I mean, like you say, they kind of begin with a bit of flattery. You know, they say, "We know that you're true. You don't care about what anybody says, and you truly teach the way of God." I I think it it really is as a way of kind of putting honey in the trap kind of to really to really set it up as a way of saying, we're trying to present this to you as a totally neutral question. You know, we're, we're coming to you. This is just a hypothetical. You know, this is something we we can disagree on or maybe, you know, we're we're we're, we're their hypocrisy, which Jesus perceives, is that they're trying to be you know, pretend as if they're disinterested in the question. Whereas in reality, what they're trying to do is say, you know, if you answer it this way, we're going to get you this way. If you answer it this way, we're going to get you this way. They think that they have him and that that there's no way that he can wriggle out of this. So, I mean, it is, it is just deception at at the end of the day. They're, they're just trying to make it seem as something like they're not. Hmm. Sure. I mean, they're, they're definitely not being, honest. What I I think is ironic is that they end up speaking things that are true about Jesus. I mean, he is true. He doesn't care about anyone else's opinion. He's not swayed by appearances. He actually does teach the way of God. It's, It's rather ironic that in their attempt at, you know, flattery, putting honey in the trap, in this hypocrisy, they end up saying things that are true about Jesus. Yeah, well, it's just like Caiaphas and John prophesying prophesying correctly that he would be, you know, one man would die on behalf of the people. You know, Caiaphas meant it in a negative way, like we'll we'll sacrifice this one guy so that we all don't, you know, die. But what he spoke was actually true, being the high priest that year, that, you know, one man would be sacrificed on behalf of the people so that they would not die. So whether what however they mean it, I mean, is one thing. 
But yes, they are still speaking the truth unwittingly. And that really is kind of the, the grand irony of this situation. So what it, I mean, before we pass over that point, then, because these things are true about Jesus, what are these true things that he doesn't care about another's opinion? He's not swayed by appearances. He teaches the way of God. What what is that truth that they unwittingly speak about Jesus? <laughs> well, I mean, that that he is all of these things that he is. He's not going to be caught by their trap because he's not paying attention to their appearances. He's not paying attention to their faces, you know, and he is speaking the truth. Because, you know, even though they're trying to get him to, to lie or to, you know, speak a falsehood, he will end up speaking the truth and only the truth. And it just, even though they're trying to catch him in some way, they're not going to be able to. And that's what I think they, they don't realize at this point, which is the, like you say, the, the grand irony of the whole situation. So, Right. All of these things that they probably don't believe are true about Jesus end up being true about Jesus and are in fact their undoing when the Lord actually comes to their trap. I mean, it is, it's rather humorous, ironic, all of, and, and tragic too, because of just the great unbelief that is, that is behind all of it, as we were saying toward the beginning. Now, when it comes to this trap, I think there's a couple of things to explore. And I, I didn't ask you this earlier, but you mentioned that both of these groups they see Jesus as a threat. Now, how how is that? How first, how do the Pharisees see Jesus as a threat? Well, Jesus is a threat to the Pharisees generally because he he has continuously said to them, you know, you, you've used your traditions as a way of uh, upsetting, you know, of contradicting the work, the law of God. And, you know, they're so bound to their unwritten tradition that they really, you know, see that as a threat to their way of life because they don't really care ultimately about what has been written in the Old Testament. They really only care about this other stuff that they have set up for themselves. And as a result, when Jesus comes and speaks against all of this, yeah, they, they absolutely see him as a threat to that. And then also with the Herodians, because they are so wrapped up with the, you know, the political situation with Rome and being uh, supporters of Herod Antipas, um, you know, they see Jesus as a threat because, well, he's, he's kind of destabilizing any, everything, right? I mean, in, in the sense that when he comes and he does the things which he does, it is going to attract Roman attention. And, you know, and maybe not always in the, the most positive way. And so in that sense, yeah, I mean, it's, it is going to be a threat to their way of life as well. And looking at what Jesus has done so far just in Holy Week, you go back to the beginning, or I guess the middle of Mark chapter 11, when Jesus enters the temple and cleanses it, that action right there sure seems like it would offend both of their sensibilities, that the Pharisees would be upset with that from a, certainly from a religious perspective in terms of overthrowing what, what they had set up and their, their traditions that would have been evident within everything that Jesus is throwing out. And then from a political perspective too, for the Herodians to, to go into the temple and cause an uproar. I mean, that's, that's the that's a powder keg potentially in terms of revolt against Rome. And so I mean just within the context of Holy Week you have that action at the very beginning on Monday where Jesus has has really done something that's going to put both of these groups on edge and so here they are confronting him in a what seems like a nice way. Well and, and don't also forget too if I remember correctly Caiaphas is actually an appointee of the Roman government. Uh Pilate's predecessor had put him into into that position because that was kind of that's been kind of the what's been happening with the high priest for a long time by this point frankly. And so for him to attack the temple in that way and to drive out the money changers is also indirectly an attack on Caiaphas himself, which would also be something of an attack on, you know, that Roman appointment as well. So, yeah, Jesus is kind of stirring up a powder keg and they don't want this to happen. And I, and I should we should point out, too, that we have seen these two groups together before. Back in Mark chapter three, after Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, the Pharisees go out and they hold counsel with the Herodians to destroy Jesus. So it's it's not entirely unheard of that these two groups are together again with that common shared purpose of trying to destroy Jesus. Now, we've got oh about a minute here before the break, Pastor Heidi. So what then is the trap? What what is it that 
they think that Jesus answers one way they've got him. If they if he answers the other, they've got him. What's the actual trap? Well, if Jesus answers the way that they've set up the question, okay, that's the important thing to remember. The way that they have set up the question, if Jesus says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they think that they can catch him by saying, well, you know, this is the, the government, you know, we shouldn't be insubordinate, that kind of thing. You're just causing trouble, okay? And that would get him in trouble with the Roman authorities and with the Herodians for that matter. But if he says, yes, we should pay taxes to Caesar, the way that they have phrased the question, then they would basically say, well, does that mean that you don't really believe in God's kingdom, that you don't really believe in what God has promised, you know, David, that he wants to set up a kingdom? It seems like you're turning away from what the Lord has promised. So that's the the dilemma that they're trying to set up for him. If they can get him either way, either yes or no. All right. So they think they've got the perfect trap. Jesus answers one way, they catch him there, he answers the other, they catch him there. The trap has been laid, but our Lord will spring it, and we will pick that up on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFO, looking at Mark chapter 12 with Pastor Zelwyn Heidi. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, March 11th. We're studying Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. We have Pastor Zelwyn Heidi with us. He serves as the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. He's also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken. Pastor Heidi, prior to the break, we were looking at the trap that is laid by the Pharisees and the Herodians, these two unlikely groups to come together who share enmity with Jesus. They are bound together in that enmity of the Lord, and they think they've got the perfect trap if he answers, yes, it's lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, then they're going to get him from a religious perspective. Don't you believe in God's kingdom? If he answers, no, you shouldn't pay taxes to Caesar. They think they've got him on the political question and he's a rebel to Rome and they can catch him like that. Jesus will not be caught though. So the text says that he knows their hypocrisy. We've seen this from Jesus before, where he knows what his opponents are thinking, what's going on, and he's going to call them on it. So he starts with, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. How does Jesus begin to spring this trap? Well, he begins by calling for you know a denarius, the actual coin, which would have been paid in the tax itself. And he is going to use the, the actual object in question as a way of making his point. So, I mean, do we want to, do you want to delve into what a denarius is or what do you want to do here? Yeah. Tell us a little bit about the denarius and, and why, why does Jesus ask for it here? What's the denarius? What's he, what's he looking for here? Right. Uh, the denarius is a very common Roman coin. Okay. Roman being the key point, you know, this was the, the common currency of the time. Uh, denarius uh, was also a kind of a smaller coin. It was usually what was a paid in a day's wage. Like, you know, you'd work all day and they would pay you a denarius. And uh, the, these denarii were usually stamped, or actually I say, shouldn't say usually, I should say were always stamped with the image of whoever issued them. So if, a, if the Caesar, for example, came into power, he would almost always issue some new coins with his face on them. You know, and also usually a, an inscription of some kind. And especially in those days, that inscription would actually be something very pagan, very, and, you know, the Jews would not have liked it because they would have said, you know, Caesar, you know, son of the gods or something like that, trying to declare who he was. And they also issued these things at important events, like if they won important battles, for example, they would issue some new coins. But the, the, the point here for Mark is, is that this coin in particular 
was what Caesar demanded as part of the tribute to Rome. Okay. They needed to pay the taxes, not the local taxes, like, you know, the tax collectors were gathering, which we, where we had with Matthew and Herod Antipas and all that sort of thing. But there's kind of a, a annual tribute as part of, you know, you're part of this empire, so you need to pay Caesar something. And that's, and that was the, what they were, what was demanded here was this denarius. Is there something to the way that Jesus does this? In other words, he he tells them, you bring me a denarius, let me look at it. You know, he doesn't, and I know this is, you know, what he doesn't do. Sometimes we want to be careful with that, but he doesn't like ask his disciples. He doesn't turn to Judas, the, the treasurer for the disciples and say, hey, hand me a denarius from our money bag. He asks them to give a denarius and then says, and I'm, it's just like, I, I can't help but hear a little bit of, you know, the, our Lord is saying this with like a twinkle in his eye, you know, let me look at it as if he doesn't know what it looks like, but they do. Or so like, is there something to the fact that he asks them to produce it and not his own disciples? It, it could be, you know, it could be that they had one among them, which would show again, something of their hypocrisy. It could also be that uh, they, that they don't have one either and they have to go get one. I mean, so you can kind of read it either way. But the point is, is that they are able to find one, which wouldn't have been that hard to do because, I mean, the denarius was basically, you know, like our dollar bill. You know, you, you can find a buck if you if you just look a little bit. It's not that hard. <laughs> so I suppose. And, and, and fair enough. Right. Not to not to read too much into it. I've I've heard that before that that in asking them and that they do produce it that there may be an element of Jesus exposing them a little bit. Look, you, you, particularly the Pharisees in this case, you who are so concerned about Roman occupation and what their rule means, you don't seem to have a problem using and holding onto their money. You've got it already and you produce it for me so that I can look at it rather than the other way around. Again, not to, not to make too big a point of it, but it, it does seem like, I mean, I just, and, and maybe it's just me. I, I want to see our, our Lord just kind of getting them right there a little bit, you know? <laughs> no, I, I understand. And you can certainly read it that way. I, I think it's entirely possible. I just don't think you have to read it that way sure. is all I'm saying. So, Okay, so so they are able to produce the denarius, this Roman coin. It's a day's wage, and it's it's got the image of whoever's minted. In this case, it's going to be Caesar. It's got this inscription, likely pagan in nature. What what would a, a typical inscription, I mean, you say it's pagan in nature, what would that have been? Yeah, I mean, like if it was, uh, well, I'm trying to think, it'd been like the 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 Caesar, you know, the, you know, of the son of, you know, the, the gods kind of a thing, kind of uh, a testament to his divine or semi-divine nature. Um, I, I can't remember some of the exact inscriptions, but they would definitely be offensive to us and to, you know, to Jewish sensibilities, because, you know, this is basically saying that this man who has issued this coin is in some way, at least quasi-divine. And that was something that was certainly happening already in the Roman Empire, where the empires, where the emperors were seen as being these kind of gods among men, or at least, you know, kind of gods among men. Right. I mean, this becomes an issue for the Christians themselves later with the confession when the Christians would, would confess and we confess Jesus is Lord, which among other things stood in opposition to the confession among Romans that Caesar is Lord. Christians would not have joined in that confession. And so already here, again, maybe not that particular inscription on the coin, but something to that same effect, which would have certainly been offensive to, to Jewish sensibilities. That's what's on the coin. So they bring it to Jesus. He again puts the question to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They answer very obviously, it's Caesar's. And then Jesus says, perhaps some of the most famous words in the scriptures. It seems like we... People quote this, right? All right. all the time. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So what is what is the answer that Jesus is giving here, Pastor Heidi? Well, the the answer is, is that the image and the likeness, the inscription on this shows that this coin in particular belongs to Caesar. So it's something that is his, it's something that you can give back to him. You know, it it's his. You know, it you shouldn't feel any compunction about giving back to Caesar what ultimately belongs to Caesar. 
But at the same time, we should be even more willing to give to God the things which belong to God. And I think if you if we're, and I'm sure we'll talk about this at a little bit more length, but if we're going by what he's saying of the coin, you know, that which bears the image of God would be, of course, ourselves, right? To give ourselves over to the Lord and to give him ultimately those things which belong to him, which if we're being honest is everything, right? I mean, Caesar gets this little piddly coin because, you know, it's his, so to speak, but we are ultimately showing our allegiance to the Lord himself. So, I mean, and, and well, just to admire a little bit the the mastery of Jesus' answer, how does he, I mean, how does he thread that needle that they've, they've set this trap for him? How does he, how does he get out of it with this, with this answer? Well, because on the one hand, he's not saying, you know, that I don't care about God's kingdom, so to speak. You know, I'm not saying that God is not going to keep his promises because ultimately we are giving the things to God, which belong to God. You know, God is still going to be the one who is ultimately in control, that the one to whom we owe our ultimate allegiance. So he's not being, you know, some kind of anti-religious, you know, zealot in that way, going against what God has done. And yet on the same time, you know, he's not being anti-political either because, you know, he's not saying we should never pay taxes. He's really just saying, you know, give to Caesar the things which belong to Caesar, but that's not the end of the story. So, I mean, he, he, he threads the needle in that way. He kind of avoids both extremes by basically saying you're both wrong. You know, it's not that we're answering this question, you know, the political way. It's not that they're answering this question the theological way, if you want to put it in those terms. But we are doing something that is is recognizes that God is is the one over both. Hmm. Okay, so we're recognizing that God is the one over both. How do, uh, just go with that, Pastor Heidi? Just take <laughs> us there. What? Where? Where are you? You're saying we're recognizing that God is over both. Where do we get that from the words of Jesus here? Well, because, you know, if we say Caesar is, you know, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but to God the things that are God's. And ultimately, you know, who does all things belong to, right? It's ultimately the Lord. The Lord is the one who gives us even, you know, the government. The God is the one who ultimately gives us you know, everything that we have. And so if God is the one who is ruling over both things, our ultimate allegiance is with the Lord. It's not that we are going against him if we give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but rather that we are listening to what our Lord says. Okay. So, and, and you also you also mentioned, take us back a little bit, the idea of what, what has the name written on it. So on this coin, Jesus says, you know, whose likeness is on it? whose image is on it, we could use that language, whose inscription, whose, whose writing, whose name is on it. So what does that have to say for the things that are Caesar's? And then for us, more importantly, what does that have to say about the things that are God's? What has his name written on it and his image and his likeness? Well, I mean, to go with the Caesar thing, and I actually looked this up just so we'd have something to work with. Uh, a, one common inscription would be in English, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus, you know, son of the, the divine, son, you know, son of the gods kind of a thing. Um, so to put uh, his face on this coin and to put this inscription that this coin ultimately belongs to him is a way of saying that this belongs to Caesar. You know, this is his and it was kind of like it was on loan to them. You know, it's not that you have the money and it's your money. They say that it's really God, you know, really Caesar's money and you're just giving it back to him. I mean, that's even the Roman understanding of, of what's going on here. But if we go with, you know, what is God saying here about us? Well, I mean, that he has put his image upon us, which, of course, we have received you know, through baptism, that he is the one who has created us anew to renew the image which was lost in the fall so that we now bear the image of the son, that we are now, you know, bearing Christ's image himself. And I mean, to use the language of revelation, you know, God has written his name upon us, you know, the name of my father and the name of the, the, the new city and my own new name. That because we bear this name, which is God's name, which has been written upon us, in that sense, we belong to God. You know, we don't belong to ourselves. We don't, you know, we don't own ourselves and we're just kind of, you know, using what's God's. But that God has, in fact, impressed himself upon us and made us his own. We ultimately belong to him, just as those coins ultimately belong to Caesar. 
Mm. Well, and and even from I mean that's and and we'll I want to explore that too in terms of a very uh, from a particularly Christian perspective. And when it comes to the name of God being written upon us, I can't help but think of holy baptism, where you know Jesus says you are baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's God putting His image, His likeness upon you in a very specific way. But even in a more more general way, you know, and I, I think you, you've mentioned this that all humanity is created. In, after the image of God, and 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 of course, you know, like you said, it's it's been lost in the fall. But even after the fall, there is that uniqueness of of humanity that you know, for example, that uh, it's Noah that's said, you know, don't kill because of that fact. And and James will talk about how people are created in the image of God, such that and here's here's the point is that, and you've said this, everything ultimately belongs to God. I think of. Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. I mean, everything belongs to him. So with that, on the one hand, Jesus does not, he certainly does not say paying taxes is wrong or sinful. And there's even a responsibility there for the Christian. But is there is there still a little bit of a, is there some subversion to Caesar and his claims in what Jesus says? Well, I think if you want to see it as being slightly subversive, it would be in the sense that uh, the kingdom of Caesar, kind of like this coin sort of, sort of thing, is ultimately very, very small in the scheme of things. You know, that the, the kingdom of Caesar, you know, the things which are of this world will ultimately come to an end. So you could see that as being somewhat subversive in the sense of saying, you know, the real kingdom, the one that will endure forever, of which the Son of Man will rule over, is the kingdom of heaven because that is ultimately above all kingdoms, above all nations. And when all of these other kingdoms and nations have come to an end, you know, the kingdom of heaven will go on. So I I think you could see it in that way. Um, But at the same time, you know, Jesus is saying, you know, God has established these things for a reason. So we shouldn't be, you know, really going against it unless we have a good reason to, if that makes sense. It does and does. And I think that that invites us to to consider perhaps some other places in scripture that deal with this and and maybe even as we have time, we got about 10 minutes here, some some contemporary application for this thought, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. I mean, last year was an election year, and ah, I don't know how many times this was was quoted for one reason or another. What what are some other places in scripture that that echo this, that further expound upon it and and help us into the way that this works out in the lives of, of Christians still today? Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, the, the passages that we usually go to, I mean, everybody goes to Romans 13, of course, you know, to be subject to the governing authorities, which I think is an important consideration. Uh, one thing that I would really emphasize is actually from first Peter, uh, where he is saying to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. This is first Peter uh, chapter 2, starting at verse 13. Um, and I think the emphasis for the Lord's sake is the key point here. That even when Paul is talking about this, you know, when Jesus is talking about this, when Peter, whoever's talking about this in the scriptures, it's always the same point. Our allegiance is ultimately to the Lord, right? Our image, our inscription, you know, and and our and our title, or the name that has been written upon us is God's. So if we are subject to these other things, like governments and the things which he has set up for us, it's because ultimately we are Christians and we follow after our true Lord, which is God himself. You know, because sometimes I think whenever this comes up, you know, when we're talking about issues of church and state, I think unfortunately we kind of get this weird division that's made and that we have to be subject to the government kind of almost without question. And that's kind of the the way that Romans 13 is sometimes presented, like you just have to listen to what the government says. But really, the reason why we listen to what the government says is because God has commanded this. But if if the government goes against that command, then we no longer have any obligation to listen to them. So I'm going to repeat that because I think it's important that the reason that we would be subject to the governing authorities or that we would render to Caesar is ultimately because it's a part of the rendering unto God. 
and it's a part of the being subject to the Lord. And I, I do think, I mean, Paul makes that point in Romans 13, you know, be, be subject to the governing authorities. He, he talks about, you know, for the sake of your conscience, if I'm not mistaken, it's not just to avoid punishment. That's the, the part I think we often focus on, but there's, I'm going to have to turn there now, Pastor Heidi. Let's see. <laughs> oh, where is it? Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. That's Romans 13, 5. And, and I mean, even in the context of the book of Romans, you know, I mean, where does chapter 12 start? It's in view of the mercies of God, right? This, right. Is, this is all out of response to what God has done as the one who's written his name upon us, who is our Lord, who, who ultimately is the one to whom we owe allegiance. And I, I mean, I think that's, that's, a really, that's a really important point. And it, it makes... It makes Jesus answer in Mark 12 and in the parallel accounts in the Synoptic Gospels much more than sort of, okay, draw a line and here's where you give Caesar these things and give God these things. But for us as Christians, it's rather a much more all-encompassing way of looking at life as a Christian of which are subject to governing authorities. That's a part of our life as a Christian. Absolutely. And maybe to really kind of round out the picture too, uh, it's important to remember that like in the book of Revelation, for example, uh, the governments of the world are presented as being ultimately demonic as opposed to the church. So this is not just a kind of, you know, everything that a government says is ultimately good. And, you know, you just kind of have to obey them no matter what. This is really ultimately a case of do these things because God has commanded them you, to do, for you to do them. And you're ultimately listening to him in all things. And when that government kind of shows its, uh, you know, if it shows a worldly character, if it shows a more demonic kind of character to it, then we are, like you say, we are under no obligation to listen to it in, in any stretch of the imagination. Hmm, right. Okay. So let's let's maybe get to a little bit of, of nitty gritty here, Pastor Heidi, if we can. Okay. You, you use the word allegiance, that a Christian's allegiance is to the Lord. So the word allegiance in my mind brings up the pledge of allegiance. Right. And so, I mean, how do, like, how do we hold some of these things together? I, I've grown up saying the Pledge of Allegiance. Our, 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 I mean, Christian children go to school and say the Pledge of Allegiance. How, how do those things work together? Well, on, on the one hand, you know, what's, what is the purpose of the Pledge of Allegiance? You know, it's to show that our, you know, a, a, an American loyalty, you know, that we are an American nation. It is an emphasis on who we are as American people which I think is fine because God has has created us to be part of a people. You know, we're not just individuals kind of drifting out in the space or something like that. You know, we are part of a nation. We come from somewhere. And in fact, those uh, realities, as we see, like in the book of Revelation, which you brought up, you know, all nations and peoples and languages, these things are not obliterated. You know, these things... This is part of who we are. This is part of how God has created us. And that's a good thing. And it's okay to be that, you know, it's, but it's when that allegiance or this, you know, claiming this allegiance gets in the way of what God's, you know, what we owe to God, our allegiance to the Lord, that then it becomes a problem. Hmm. Or, or could we say if, and here I'm thinking along the lines of, of what happened, particularly in, in the, the days of, well, Jesus, and then right after him, if the allegiance to the nation becomes more important than allegiance to the Lord, such that if, you know, rather than Caesar is Lord, we would, maybe someone might say today, America is Lord. When that starts to happen, then, then we, like, red flags are going up, and we need to, like, Jesus is Lord, and confess that. Right. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if it comes to that point, I mean, we have to even be willing to say that ultimately, that you know, being American, as, as important as that is, is as nothing in comparison as to being a Christian. We have to be willing to, in that sense, give it up for the sake of the kingdom. But that doesn't mean that God wants us to. It just means that our allegiance, in that sense, is with God first, foremost, and above all. So what are what are some of those those moments? Because as you said, like Romans 13 will get thrown out at, at times when it says, you know, we should just do what the government says. How do we how do we as Christians and we've only got like three minutes here, Pastor Heidi. So, you know, we'll do what we can. Give us at least a little bit of guidance. How do we as Christians discern those moments when the Caesar is asking for something that we are not to actually give him, something that doesn't belong to him? Right. 
Well, if and I think we see it happen very much within our culture these days where, you know, Caesar is is treading on things which properly belong to God. I think the way to to know the difference, like, you know, when we need to resist, when we need to, you know, actually stop listening in that sense, can only come from a thorough understanding of what God has established. So the only way we're going to be able to effectively resist what the government is saying is if we know what God is saying in the first place. So I think it, we, you can't overemphasize the importance of knowing the word in this case, of knowing what it is that God has actually said, of being able to s- compare what Caesar is saying in that sense with what God says. And if we find that the two are in conflict, you know, too bad for Caesar. We have to listen to God. Right. The, the apostles' words from Acts chapter 5 come to mind that, you know, we must obey God rather than men. This is a something that we need to be able to confess to Caesar, whatever form Caesar takes among us, whether it is the, the current constitution that that holds authority in our country or another form of government, we need to be able and ready to say that. And as you said, the, the way you know that is, well, like, what what does God put his name on? What does he put his word to? What does his word actually say? And when we know that, then we're we're much better equipped to to discern these things as Christians and and you know to do it in the in the context of other Christians, not to not to try to do it on your own, but to do it in the context of the church with the help of a, a faithful pastor, all underneath that word of Christ, the word of God to whom everything belongs. Pastor Heidi, with about a minute and a half here, help us wrap things up this morning, point us to the good news of Christ crucified and risen from this text. Well, I mean, the the way to maybe wrap up this text in particular, of course, is that, you know, our Lord is is showing us that, yes, you know, we should render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's. You know, God has established these things for our good. But ultimately, we want to show our allegiance to the Lord himself because, you know, it is not Caesar who has died for you. It is not Caesar who is the Lord. It's not Caesar who is, you know, able to speak on behalf of God. But the living words of God come from Christ, who is our life and who is our redemption. So we need to look towards him in all things and we need to cl- and hold on to him, listen to his words, you know, abide in his word. And when we do that, we will be prepared for whatever situation we find ourselves in, especially in the, the current context. Pastor Zelwyn Heidi is the pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Hanover, North Dakota, and Zion Lutheran Church in New Salem, North Dakota. Also one of the hosts of the podcast, A Word Fitly Spoken, helping us today with Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. Pastor Heidi, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Mark chapter 12 or any of the gospel according to St. Mark, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. We love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.